Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week's episode is a sponsored one by a repeat sponsor, no less. Many thanks to friend of the show, Nick, for this topic, even though it was very hard. (laughs) (laughs) And listeners including, but not only Nick, if you have a topic in archaeology or anthropology that you'd love for us to talk about, you too can sponsor an episode. Just head on over to thedirtpod.com, scroll all the way down to the bottom of the homepage, and then click the graphic that says sponsor an episode. Yep. And it'll walk you through the rest. So we love researching the sponsored episodes because so often they're about topics we wouldn't have thought of. And especially in Nick's case, Nick always makes us think, which I grumble about a lot, but I actually really appreciate because it's keeping our brains from getting too rusty. Anna. Hi. While we are out there knocking the rust off our brains, (laughs) what else should listeners be looking forward to? Listeners should be looking forward to something that I included at the end of this script, but we can talk okay, about great. it now. I think so. I think, <laughs> yeah. we, think it no, works we both, both, both ends. Yeah, let's make a sandwich. What if they're uh, asleep by the time they get to the end? Oh, sweet dreams. Um, But listeners, you should come to our live show, which is going to be on Thursday, February 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So that's GMT minus five. Is that correct? Yes. Mm, Yes. Uh, And it's going to be on the topic of kind of a a highlights tour of various African cave sites involving different members of the hominin family lineage. So it's going to be a lot of fun and you can see our faces as we record and kind of um, see what it looks like as we record an episode without the benefits of editing. And to do that, um, you can go to thedirtpod.com slash anthro day 2021. And so we're doing this in conjunction with the American Anthropological Association's anthro day. Yeah. So, and so um, we can we can wrap up a little bit more at the end. So we can uh, talk about that more at the end. But I wanted to make sure that yeah, yeah, if you yeah. are just popping in. Hello. Got it. Hi. Come join us. Hello. It's free. Welcome. Yeah. So, yeah, I should mention, um, when you go and you click on that link, thedirtpod.com slash anthroday2021, all you're doing is reserving a spot and getting yourself the Zoom link that takes you to the live show. It's totally free. And, uh, yeah, there's going to be some question and answer time. And Mm -hmm. goodness knows, all kinds of live goofs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, this week... Uh, The thing that we're thinking about with our rusty little brains is the idea of inequality in the ancient past. So as as Nick wrote, two of my favorite things to think about. Mm -hmm. I know this is really this is a real peanut butter in my chocolate. (laughs) Two great tastes that taste great together. How variable were specific outcomes in prehistoric human groups across individuals? Were things like skeletal and dental pathologies distributed evenly, and then by extension, things like access to nutritional resources or care distributed 
equally. And then Nick wrote a bunch of other stuff, but no spoilers (laughs) to Nick's email, I guess. (laughs) So first, how do we even get at the question of inequality in the deep past if we're talking tens or hundreds of thousands of years ago? What kinds of evidence can we look for? As Nick said, we can look at skeletal evidence to see if everyone in ancient social groups was getting the same kind of nutrition and care at any given time. Ancient socialism. Each according to his nutritional needs. Mm -hmm. As you might imagine, listeners, given how difficult it can be to piece together the lives of people even in the relatively recent past, this one is going to be tough. So here's how we've organized this episode. We'll start by going as far back in the past as we can find evidence for, and then we'll talk about the idea of egalitarianism in both ancient and modern hunter-gatherer groups, because there's some stuff to unpack there. And then we'll get to a few other categories of evidence for social differentiation and walk through some archaeological sites as case studies. Nice. Thank I'm you. Excited. So first, let us take a look at an idea that's been kicking around archaeology and anthropology for a long time. Fat, did you hear that? Is, do you have a dog barking or something? No, it's, it's a, a car barking. Oh, no, I only hear my, my neighbor's dogs. Honk. Honk. That's what it's doing. Oh, uh, remember back when Dane Cook was funny? You sent that to me. Do you know you also were the person who told me that the iPhone was coming? Huh. I don't remember that. I think of you every time I use my iPhone. Oh, that's nice. Because you were the person who was like, yeah, Apple's releasing a phone in your iPod. And I was just like, that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) We were in the dining hall. We were having Dendin. And you were like, I I read about this in a magazine. That's something I I would say. (laughs) I also introduced you to Flight of the Concords. You're welcome. I did. They're still funny. They're the, yeah, the one thing I've introduced you to that's still fun. <laughs> no. Apple iPhone? Not. Nah. <laughs> Not fun. Dane Cook? Mm-mm. <laughs> Turns out. Oh. Hot takes from the dirt. Oh, wonderful. From 15 years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, this theory, this idea has been kicking it around for a lot, long time. Yeah, a little tip of the hat to our uh, colleagues on the APN, the Life in Ruins podcast, because yeah. this is something that I think bit them in the butt a little bit for asserting. <laughs> Chomp. Um, <laughs> was that the rise of agriculture was the first time that human society started to develop a hierarchical structure in terms of accumulated resources. In other words, wealth. This comes from a lengthy article in the Scientific American you want to subscribe by Laura Spenny. Uh, and this came out in July, 2020. Yeah. It's heavily excerpted, but we will have it on the show notes. If you'd like to read the whole thing. Yeah. So Spenny writes roughly 11,500 years ago, Europe and the middle East were emerging from an ice age as the weather grew warmer and the land more bountiful hunter gatherers in the so-called fertile crescent an envelope of land around the euphrates tigris that really is your name (laughs) sorry (laughs) an envelope of land around the euphrates tigris and nile rivers and the eastern coast of the mediterranean sea gradually became more sedentary They spent less of their time hunting wild ibex and boar and gathering wild grasses, and they spent more of it tending their own domesticated animals and plants. Sheep, goats, wheat, (laughs) peas, and lentils. Sheep, goats. Sheep, goats. Yeah. Um, Archaeobotany 
in particular, the study of ancient pollen and archaeozoology, the study of ancient animal bones, revealed this transition. These were the first farmers, people who spoke unknown languages, of which Basque could be a relic, (laughs) used stone tools, and about 9,000 years ago, headed for Europe in search of new land to cultivate. The farmers reached the new continent by two routes— in boats via the Mediterranean, and on foot along the Danube River from the Balkans into Central Europe. Radiocarbon dating of archaeological sites revealed that by about 7,500 years ago, Danubian farmers (laughs) were building villages in the Carpathian Basin, modern-day Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania. And there they began creating a pottery culture. I can't see the word Carpathian without thinking about Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, I know. Kind of a shame. I know. <laughs> I think that one's the better Ghostbusters. I'll say it. Okay. Yeah. I'll say it. That's okay. Sticking to it. Um, archaeologists call it the Linear Pottery Culture, LBK, by its German acronym for Linear Band Keramic. Linear, well, Linear, linear Band Keramic. <laughs> linear Band Keramic. Uh, because of the distinctive spiral motifs with which they decorated their Ceramic. Ceramics. Yep. Traveling rapidly westward across the fertile plains of what is now Germany, the LBK farmers reached the Rhine within a few, just a few centuries, around 7,300 years ago. Fine-grained analysis of the evolution of pottery styles, along with radiocarbon dating, suggests they practice a form of leapfrog colonization. Mm-hmm. Anna, what is leapfrog colonization? And how is it not those little like proto-computers that we used when we were in elementary school? Oh, leapfrogs. Um, no, it's those little origami things that you can make and you press on the frog's butt and he hops. No. Oh, yeah. In fact, um, but, but colonization. Perfect. Yeah, so Nailed it. Moving on. <laughs> uh, it is, well, it's sort of kind of like that because, <laughs> because, ready? I'm going to connect this and it's going to be oh, great. No. Leapfrog colonization is a form of population movement where you have a population that travels somewhere, kind of finds a place to set up shop and stays there for a while. And then gradually the population size grows until it exceeds the resource capacity of that Mm -hmm. area. And then a fragment of that population pops off and leaves. So essentially resource strain is the finger pressing down on the little origami frog, butt, prompting a portion of the population to leap to a new location. See what I did there? Okay. So it's, so it's not like you've got, because my assumption would be like, you basically have like franchises. It's not so much like, that you it's not you, a sense of you establish it, and then you're like, "I'm I'm busting out of here. This place is is full squares now. I'm gonna go find a cool place." Spoon this popsicle they, stand, and then they move. So okay, it's something like interesting. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How is this not all colonization in terms of like movements of from like th- a sort of ecological standpoint? I mean, in in a, in a way, it describes a lot of types of colonization but i I think so so it that's versus just like pushing the boundary like it's sort of you you have a discrete place and then you go to a new discrete place rather than just slowly push like expanding yeah rather than slowly expanding in kind of like a single amoeba shape you are fragmenting and leaving the original population to start a new amoeba okay Um, And my understanding is that there's less of a sense of kind of intentionality to this because colonization, 
can be sort of with intent, sort of like mm-hmm. we want to see what is over there and we want to own that thing over there. Mm-hmm. But this is sort well, of we more want like, to. Okay, there is the we want to own that thing. We also just like we want we want to be there. Want to be over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's that. But I think this is less that and more just sort of striking out with a new portion of the population, finding a new sort of resource catchment area, okay. as you might call it, and then and then I might. Yeah. Okay, cool. In in um, sort of evolutionary terms, this is what you would call the founder effect, where you have a portion of the population leaving the original population, taking their unique genes with them, and starting a new population. And then 200 years later, you get a, like, hit musical? hip-hop musical. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Alexander Hamilton. No. Oh, <laughs> on the southern route, the farmers leapfrogged along the Mediterranean coast from Italy to France and on to the Iberian Peninsula. Sounds lovely. Yes, um, a grand tour. <laughs> after reaching French shores, seventy-eight hundred or so years ago, they aren't French yet. They, I know. I'm I'm having a lot of trouble here. Um, they migrated towards the Paris Basin. Yeah. What is now called the Paris Basin. The the plain between the Rhine and the Atlantic Ocean that forms a kind of continental cul-de-sac. It was there that the two great streams of farmers met around seven millennia ago. By then, their cultures had diverged to some extent. They had been separated for more than 500 years, but they they would have still recognized their own kind. Not to be like, Dave? No, Dave. just be like, you no, are also just, a human. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, they mingled. They mingled both biologically and culturally. Hey, girl. Would you like to mingle culturally and possibly biologically? Gross. Listeners, try that out. Don't. Or don't. The first farmers to enter <laughs> Europe probably came with their families, as revealed by a 2017 study by Amy Goldberg, an evolutionary anthropologist then at Stanford University, and her colleagues. They analyzed the X chromosomes of 20 Neolithic Europeans, so around this time period. Unlike a Y chromosome, which can be inherited only from a father, well, from a biological male, let's say, an X chromosome can be inherited from either parent. Goldberg's team reported that male and female farmers had contributed X chromosomes to the 20 individuals in roughly equal proportions. Other researchers have concluded that these societies were patrilocal, meaning that wealth was passed down the male line and women married in from outside. Clues to the mobility of women came from the ratio of strontium isotopes in their teeth. So call back to our recent episode on Hyksos. Mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. reflect their dietary history and from the constant influx of outside artistic influences into farming communities as evinced by their pottery. It's a word you don't hear that often. Evinced. I say it too much. Oh, I say it maybe I should say it more. Women are thought to have decorated the pottery as in agricultural societies of later eras. Got to there, find yourself a, a free spirit and a creative type. Comes in with her smock. Oh, this? I just threw some lines on it. Sounds great. (laughs) Sooner or later, the immigrant farmers must have met the resident hunter-gatherers. And when they did, their life got a little crazy. Hi, I'm Ryan. Um, And when it happened, it must have been a shock. 
Approximately 40,000 years had elapsed since their common ancestors split paths on their way out of Africa. Bye, Dave. Long enough to distinguish them physically, culturally, and linguistically. Comparisons of their genes with those of modern Europeans indicate that the farmers were shorter than the Western hunter-gatherers who occupied most of the continent. They also had dark hair, dark eyes, and probably lighter skin. There is no evidence of violence between the two groups in the earliest encounters, although the archaeological record is incomplete enough that violence cannot be ruled out. Yeah, all right. But hmm. yet in large Hang parts, on to that. Hang yep. on to that. Like, mm. That wish for violence. <laughs> yet in large parts of Europe, the hunter-gatherers and their Mesolithic culture simply vanished from both genetic and archaeological records the moment the farmers arrived. Yet hold on to that the moment because let's well, we'll talk about the resolution of the archaeological record the neanderthals the ate them yeah the neanderthals ate them mm-hmm. where did they go <laughs> the hunter gatherers must still have been there somewhere because modern europeans carry their genes and europe-wide surveys of ancient dna have highlighted a so-called mesolithic resurgence that started 6500 years ago hunter gatherer genetic elements sounds, accounted this sounds very conservative the Mesolithic resurgence. I think we're having one now. <sighs> Hunter-gatherer genetic elements accounted for more and more of the farmer's genomes as time went on, but the resurgence was not just genetic. Archaeologist Thomas Perrin of the Jean Jaurès, Jean Jaurès, what do we do with an accent grave? University of Toulouse in France said, quote, around the same time, we see the reemergence in the archaeological record of Mesolithic ways of doing things, end quote. So technology as well as genes. The hunter-gatherers themselves were no longer there, except for possible pockets of them hiding deep in the forest, like cryptids. But their genes and their technology were there. More recent colonizations of hunter-gatherer territory by farmers could also help explain why the Mesolithic resurgence around 1,500 years after farmers arrived in Europe took so long. When Bantu farmers started expanding into southern Africa 3,000 years ago, they encountered the forest-dwelling pygmies. And that's capital P. It's the, the name of the group there. So, A group of hunter-gatherers from whom they were as genetically distant as they were from Europeans. Evolutionary geneticist Luis Quintana Mercy of the Pasteur Institute in Paris, who has pieced the joint history of these two groups together using ancient DNA, said, quote, For a long time, there were commercial transactions between Bantu and Pygmies, but no interbreeding. End quote. When the interbreeding finally started, more than 2,000 years after the two groups met, it was pygmy women who married into Bantu communities, where they were, and still are, treated as socially inferior, a lower socioeconomic class that is also differentiated biologically. So Quintana Mercy goes on to say, quote, Bantus have a double-edged relationship with the pygmies. On the one hand, they treat them like servants. On the other, they are slightly afraid of them. In the Bantu way of thinking, pygmies are the masters of the forest, and some of them have shamanic powers, end quote. Did a similar lowering of social barriers allow Europe's early farmers and its hunter-gatherers to mix? It is hard to know. Yeah, pretty much impossible. <laughs> But a possible clue is provided by the Cerny culture of the Paris Basin. Archaeologists have long regarded Cerny as a last vestige of LBK. 
If that premise is correct, the inhabitants had farming in their blood. The ancestors were the early farmers of the Carpathian Basin. Yet in cemeteries dating from 6,700 years ago, men of high status were buried lying on their backs, not curled up on their sides, and arranged around them were hunting weapons and ornaments made from red deer antlers, the tusks of wild boars, and the claws of birds of prey. Archaeologist Aline Thomas of the Museum of Mankind, Musée de l'Homme in Paris, there said, quote, their funerary rites speak to another world from their day to day. They make reference to the sphere of the wild, things that are more often associated with Mesolithic hunter-gatherer populations, end quote. You know, the yes. Musée de l'Homme is, is, okay, so I saw it on the map and I was like, I don't want to go to a museum about men. <laughs> Um, <laughs> this is me laughing at myself. Yeah, I know. I'm not gonna. I'm. I'm not laughing at I you, mean, but I'm also going. Oh, buddy, <laughs> let's go to Paris together. Because also, I will give you the best tour of Le Marais, which is my favorite. I would part love of Paris. to go to a Par- I would like the Paris to Basin with you. Let's go um, to the Paris Basin. The other time that I went there, I didn't go to that museum. I was just like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, go, let's go to all the Paris museums. Great. Great. Those rites have prompted the researchers to ask, who were the Cerny people really? Were they farmers who had adopted Mesolithic ways and come to venerate them? Or were they recently convoyed hunter-gatherers who had never let them go? Uh, researchers have been ex- analyzing DNA extracted from the Sarney cemeteries to try to answer that question. So far, they have analyzed the maternally inherited mitochondrial DNA and found that it contains Mesolithic elements. So, At Sarney, therefore, hunter-gatherer women came into the community from outside to marry local men. This influx may reflect what was happening in other farming communities of the period, because by 6,700 years ago, the Mesolithic resurgence, the emergence of hunter-gatherer genes in farming genomes, was well underway. So let's take a quick ad break while we briefly consider the idea that Paris is just right over a giant hole. It's just over a gaping cave because of all that gypsum they excavated. And I think about that a lot. And then we're going to talk a bit more about studies on hunter-gatherers because there is a lot to unpack there. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. 
Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Oh, hello there. Hi. I see you're back. Me too. Wow. Yeah, I'm just, well, called you Calypso. And I'm trying to do something here. I'm, I'm so sorry. Some, yeah. Oh, hello there. I didn't see you come in. I was just getting ready to unpack my theory satchel. <laughs> Gosh, I'm so glad I shut up and let you do that bit. <laughs> um, wow. A lot do you have some thoughts? There. Yeah. I got yep, some thoughts. Sure is. Yep. I've got yep, some yep, like yep, extra yep. thoughts that like are in the script too. But, Great. Great. Um, let's, let's hear them. Okay. So the Scientific American article that Anna just kindly read to us from, um, and I also did. Did I read it? Did I read it? Who read it? Me. What's happening? No, you're right. That was that was me also reading from I forgot how long that article was. Yep. <laughs> we both read from it. Gosh. Lived lives. We crossed wow. oceans of time together to get across that ad break. Okay. So I'm in my little my little inflatable swimmies just going help. <laughs> so that article that we both read to you. Um, it brings up a couple of points, um, both implicitly and explicitly. So first there's the idea that behavior in hunter-gatherer societies was, or is, much less focused on the accumulation of individual or family resources slash wealth, yeah. um, and much more about sharing out tasks and resources. Second, there's the idea that modern hunter-gatherer groups can be a proxy for hunter-gatherers in the past. And I will add a third. Yeah, go for it. Of just, um, and in this sort of, I, th I think this, this bleeds into the second point about using like contemporary groups for proxies for the past. Yeah. It's, um, yep. It's a real is, issue is looking at the idea of women marrying in and mm -hmm. like having, is this something that you talk about in the script or can I just mention it? Please do. Um, yeah. So like in, in reading that, what I was thinking about was, um, those comments, um, the comments that Quintana Mercy was, was making mm -hmm. about, um, sort of the the cultural context of the like Bantu pygmy relationship. Um, yep, and that like it sounds to me that they're describing that the Bantu are describing something slightly less than human. Um, like like in terms of like humans with like agency and personhood and and that kind of like as equals let's say like they're certainly not describing the pygmies as equals and and but this is filtered through this researcher's interpretation so i'm i'm sort of reluctant to yeah so well well but also like we i that's a good point and also sort of re reaffirms um the point that i'm making that like we definitely aren't going to have sort of first person. We aren't going to have primary sources about the Mesolithic. No. Uh, so it's well, sort of like by default. No. Yeah. So like that, they did. That, like the same, I like, I think it still applies here, but this idea of somebody that you don't see as your equal, you see as your inferior or you treat mm -hmm. as your inferior mm -hmm. or you're slightly afraid of them. And that fear either stems from or informs a sense of superiority. Yeah. But you are willing to interbreed. You're willing to interbreed and you're willing to marry the women. And this makes me think about the 
behavior of um, major military superpowers, um, like when they are deployed abroad, um, and and There's sort of behavior of colonizers in general. Beha- yes, exactly. Um, so that does extend to that. So like the examples I was thinking of were sort of like more like military incursions, but but especially colonizers in general. It's a great point of like colonizers are. Um, not willing to see the colonized as equals, but they they're are willing very to marry willing. The women. They're very willing to marry the women, mm-hmm. and I think that speaks to the status of women and the view of women. That like that, and I don't know if that's because they aren't. I don't have any like theory to. I don't have any writing to back this up. Like any any scholars. No, back but, but this a, is something that observation I'm, that is making me think about this. Of just like well. Women aren't people. Like it's sort of you've got like if if that if that's like it doesn't count. Yeah, like it's um, yeah. And I wonder if I I and I this is something I wonder about the subjects. I wonder about the researchers. I wonder about contemporary subjects, ancient stu- subjects. Like it talking yeah, about yeah. It's sort just of a really interesting question. Yeah, deep antiquity. Of there are the levels of, of yeah, inequality, just, basically. Yeah. And so, yeah. but that's, I just, that's something that I was just um, thinking about. And I don't know if I articulated that you know, I mean, at all. In that oh. it is just like, as it exists for both of us, it's just sort of a big question mark, but it's a really interesting question to think about when you don't have answers. It's just, as you said, we're seeing this is sort of getting to like foundational to like what you had told. Uh-oh. Um, so mitochondrial DNA, yes, is maternally passed. So here's the thing there's a study that just came out that said, in very, very rare instances, mitochondrial DNA can be passed on by fathers, but okay. for the most part, your mitochondrial DNA comes only from your maternal line. So, mitochondrial DNA, as you can tell from the name. Is, is the powerhouse of the cell. The powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> Amino acids, the building blocks of life. Um, but <laughs> have, have you seen that video from like the 70s? That was like a um, like a very like hippy dippy like body no. movement representation of dna no but we're gonna post that on the instagram you're gonna gonna, find it i gotta find it but it's it's just like gna (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's coming at the end of the month um no so mitochondrial (laughs) dna exists in the mitochondria it is not affected by meiosis so it's not affected by the division of uh, sex cells and Mm -hmm. so it is passed on only through uh, the maternal line as i said except for very rare instances and so it is often used to look at uh, gradual because the because it's not affected by meiosis, and so genes aren't reshuffled in mitochondrial DNA during meiosis, which happens to your actual nuclear DNA uh-huh. in your cell. Um, then the only change that occurs in mitochondrial DNA is through mutation over time, and so you can look at lines of mater- uh, mitochondrial DNA to look at kind of lineage evolution so it's really useful for that what would we see like what would we have to find in order to see that men were marrying in that's a really good question and i'm not enough of a genetics expert to to sort of pull that out of nowhere um 
I think we'd have to see specific sex linked traits that come with a Y chromosome. Okay. Because that is the only thing that, that if you are biologically male, you are the one with a Y chromosome. So if there's something entering into a population where you, for a long time, you don't see this trait and then you do see a trait and is specifically connected to a Y chromosome, then I think you can infer that it's, it's new populations of, of males who are marrying in. But it does. So again, I'm not going to litigate this too much more because you are not a DNA expert. I haven't done but, enough reading for the upcoming DNA episode. <laughs> Ooh, I'll be but, an expert in so, two weeks. Because I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, is is mitochondrial DNA something that we can pretty readily find, like locate and be like, there, ladies, we found them. <laughs> and is there something... Ladies like, everywhere. Is there possibly more just intermarriage than we um, expect? Then... The, than what we're seeing at the level of, uh, of, of like with the, the research tools available to That's us. a really good question. That is my and question. I, yeah. And I think we should talk to, rather than me kind of trying to um, style out an answer to make yeah. myself seem intelligent. Uh, I, I really, I think we should talk to an expert about that so that I don't give our listeners wrong information. Yeah. Cause like, again, like talking about sort of the behavior of like, colonizers among the colonized right. what are that we is seeing not, and what that are is we not, not a natural seeing? law no like, no no is, it's not, like that yeah. is something that that we we do so we being like members of it's something that you can observe like, in modern populations exactly and so can you extrapolate that even to a thousand years ago no you can't are, yeah are we projecting that onto the past because we don't have the mechanisms to find a different set of there, data. So there are limitations so just, to what we can see uh, from DNA data, from other, you know, from material data. And um, I'm not sure exactly where those limitations fall in terms of the resolution at which we can see populations merging. Um, so that is something that, that we will have to reserve for a guest expert, I think. So, if if you're listening to this and you're thinking, Help. my God, they are only on page four of the script, and I know way more about this. I'm screaming at my I'm screaming at my podcatcher the way that people scream when there's something that somebody just should like look up on IMDb. Um, if you're having that feeling now, like like when a podcast host thinks that hey yeah was by Snoop Dogg, <laughs> yeah. If you're having that feeling, but about DNA. The dirt podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, please. please help us. So okay. thank you. Thank you. I try for your patience. Hey, so <laughs> we're going to pull now from a really interesting article from sapiens.org, your friend and mine written by James Susman, who is an anthropologist and researcher. So the article concerns envy, which of mm-hmm. course derives from inequality. You have to have something that somebody else wants in your order neighbor, for them. Your to neighbor envy has you. to have an ass that you don't have less so that you'll covet it. Covet that ass. Yep. Um, so this relating to the idea of kind of extrapolating behavior from hunter-gatherer societies and trying to understand things about the past from modern contemporary hunter-gatherer societies. I thought this was really interesting in light of that um, for a few reasons and we can discuss those, but it also uh, at the beginning gives a really helpful rundown of the history of how white anthropologists have viewed hunter-gatherer societies in the last several decades. And this specifically um, deals with the Jatwasi, 
which is not spelled like that, um, but it is pronounced Chetoisi, um, of Africa. But I am extending this to, because there are hunter-gatherer groups extant currently uh, in lots of places, including South America and the Arctic and in Africa. So just lest we think that we're only kind of pointing at these African groups. We're not. All hunter-gatherer groups. Hashtag yes, all hunter-gatherer groups. <laughs> Let's not make that a thing. Oh, no, don't do For that. For one thing, it's too many characters. <laughs> James Susman says. He does. <laughs> quote. quote. Yeah. <laughs> Envy plays a far more profound role in shaping our choices and actions than most of us would care to admit. This is not just because it often masquerades as ambition, nor is it because so many of us now conflate self-worth with impossible expectations. Woof. Gosh, James <laughs> coming for me. <laughs> I feel seen and attacked. Rather, it is because envy served an important, if surprising, evolutionary purpose, one that helps us to reconcile the most selfish traits with the sociability that was so critical to the extraordinary success of our species. If the if the behavior of 20th century hunter-gatherer societies is anything to go by. It's a big if. If. Over and above its obvious selective benefits for individuals, every formed part of the cocktail of traits that ultimately assisted Homo sapiens to form and maintain strong social groups. So research conducted among the Jatwazi, um, they are inhabitants of Namibia's Kalahari Desert in the 1950s and in 1960s, see, when they could still hunt and gather freely, turned established views of social evolution on their head. Up until then, it was widely believed that hunter-gatherers endured a near-constant battle against starvation and that it was only with the advent of agriculture that we began to free ourselves from the capricious tyranny of nature. Mm, You hate to see it. (laughs) When in 1964, a young Canadian anthropologist, Richard Borchet Lee... Mm -mm. Feel good about that? Sure. Richard Borchet Lee conducted a series of simple economic input-output analyses of the Jatwazi as they went about their daily lives. He revealed that not only did they make a good living from hunting and gathering, but they they were also well nourished and content. Like Most, everyone was like, "Oh, it's terrible," and yet no one asked them for just a long time. And you know why they assumed it was terrible? Because the system they in, they were in was horrible. Oh yeah. So they, yes. If like surely, surely my, they were doing better. My life is such a grind. Yours must be at awful. At least, yeah. Because why would I have such like why would I put up with all this if I get such little out of it? Surely, you're getting even less. There has to be a benefit to my terrible life. At least I can be better off than you. Turns out. Most remarkably, his research revealed that the Jatwazi managed this on the basis of little more than 15 hours work per week. Ugh. <laughs> I'm very tired. Amber is, is speaking again to suggest <laughs> that perhaps listeners might be interested in checking out the work of David Graeber, the, the late social anthropologist um, who is most famous for his book, Bullshit Jobs. Yeah. About sort of quick little book club recommendation. (laughs) Back to James (laughs) Sussman. 
This research also revealed that the Jutwazi were able to make a good living from a sparse environment because they cared little for private property and, above all, were, quote, fiercely egalitarian, end quote, as Lee put it. It showed the Jutwazi had no formalized leadership institution, no formal hierarchies, men and women enjoyed equal decision-making powers, children played largely non-competitive games in mixed-age groups, and the elderly, while treated with great affection, were not afforded any special status or privileges. But... <laughs> this egalitarian organization, Suzman argues, is not... The organic outcome of interactions between people acting explicitly in their own self-interest in a highly individualistic society. What? <laughs> this, was, <laughs> this was because among foraging Jatwazi, self-interest was always policed by its shadow, envy, which in turn ensured that everyone always got a fair share and that those with the natural charisma and authority to lead exercised it with great circumspection. This was best exemplified in the customary insulting of the hunter's meat uh this is this is so great this is such a cool study also it's a very funny very funny words phrase yeah taken out of the context it's time to insult the hunter's meat (laughs) (laughs) so skilled jatwazi hunters needed a thick skin metaphorically metaphorically yeah yeah for a while a particularly spectacular kill was always cause for celebration the hunter responsible was insulted rather than flattered. Regardless of the size or condition of the carcass, those who do a those do a share of the meat would complain that the kill was trifling, that it was barely worth the effort of carrying it back to camp, or that there wouldn't be enough meat to go around. For his part, the hunter was expected to be almost apologetic when he presented the carcass. Sorry. A quote from a Jatwazi man. When a young man kills much meat, he comes to think of himself as a chief or a big man, and he thinks of the rest of us as his servants or inferiors. We can't accept this, so we always speak of his meat as worthless. This way we cool his heart and make him gentle. It's the end of the quote. This kind of teasing was not only confined to good hunters. It was meted out to anyone who boasted, got too big for his leather sandals, or encountered a windfall of some sort. And anyone who was seen to be selfish, perhaps by hoarding tobacco or food, could expect a barrage of unfriendly insults. So, um... Suzman goes on to say, my inquiries into why the Jutwazi were so quick to criticize, tease, and mock always generated the kinds of answers that remind anthropologists that cultural norms are norms precisely because they are accepted rather than interrogated, and because they present themselves as natural and inevitable. Every time I asked, the mockery was ascribed to simply feelings of envy, just as the humility shown by good hunters and others with something to brag about was ascribed to embarrassment. It's just how we are, I was told again and again. Which is why cultural relativism is such an important tool. Yeah. So insults and mockery weren't the only tools that hunter-gatherers had in their bags to maintain egalitarianism. Another that was explicitly linked to the expression of envy was, quote, demand sharing, end quote. Where we usually consider it rude for others to ask unashamedly for something that we own or just to expect to receive it, the Jutwazi considered this normal. More so, as far as they were concerned, denying someone's request ran the risk of being sanctioned for selfishness. Demand sharing did not lead 
lead to a free-for-all that ended up undermining any sense of private ownership. Instead, demands for things were usually, though not always, carefully considered. The net result of this was that, while private property was respected, after all, if there is no private property, how could you enjoy giving or receiving a gift, material inequalities were quickly ironed out. Yeah, I thought that was really neat. And the article itself is quite a bit longer, but we'll leave it there for now. It's going to be on the show notes if you'd like to read the whole thing, because I want to talk about a couple things. First, I just thought that it was really interesting to contrast the types of social interactions that are commonplace for the Jatwazi with what we'd think, Amber, you and I, as as sort of, you know, Americans with an American perspective, what we'd think of as, as manners or acceptable social behavior in the Western world. Um, we don't really need to go into it. It's just, it's, it's a very big contrast and it's a really interesting one. And it's one of the problems with trying to draw links between cultures now and cultures in the past. Mm-hmm. So the second thing that I want to bring up, and it's just jumping off this, and maybe I'm splitting hairs, but I want to go back to that big if at the beginning of the article. So if the behavior of modern hunter-gatherers is any indication of behaviors present early on in the evolutionary career of Homo sapiens. If. So I found a very cool article published in the journal Evolutionary Anthropology in October of 2020, written by Abigail Page and Jennifer French. So it's titled Reconstructing Prehistoric Demography, colon, What Role for Extant Hunter-Gatherers? Question what mark. role? What role? And among other things, it lays out five pitfalls faced by researchers working with past and present hunter-gatherers and thus applicable to both anthropologists and archaeologists. Woof, woof. Woof, woof. My neighbor dog has opinions about this article. I I hope that when you're editing this, you'll get to hear Calypso's snores because they were rocking a little while ago. Oh, sweepy puppy. So I'm going to list a couple of those pitfalls and give you kind of the quick versions of each of them. It's a very good article, but it is very detailed and very written for anthropologists. So pitfall number one. Not recognizing the limitations of hunter-gatherer demographic data. Researchers who work with hunter-gatherer groups may collect self-reported data. It's a big part of ethnographic research in general is rather than existing within the population and being with individuals in the population 24-7, you ask that you conduct interviews and ask members of the population about details of their lives. Um, And trusting that this is an accurate approach has some Uh, downsides. And so from the article, quote, foraging groups are often non-literate and do not keep their own records. To create a full record of births, deaths, and migration, field workers conduct detailed self-reported genealogies. However, self-reports rarely produce a fully accurate demographic record. Recall bias is common, leading to an underreporting of births, miscarriages, stillbirths, and infant mortality due to either forgetfulness, a lack of cultural recognition of a birth, or simple miscommunication. Taboos may further exacerbate inaccuracies. For example, the Agta, which is a foraging group uh, on Luzon, an island in the Philippines, use nicknames to refer to their in-laws since it is forbidden to use their given names. As different nicknames are used, reconciling different genealogies can be challenging. End quote. That sounds really difficult. (laughs) Plus, concepts of time within any given group might be different. People might consider time or, or, or conceive of time differently. So getting accurate ages of, of members of a population can be really tricky. Pitfall number two, quote, 
There is a clear risk of applying ethnographic data to prehistoric contexts in ways that are at best misleading and at worst at odds with key biological and demographic principles. Examples of such misunderstandings exist in the literature, several of which have gained the status as truisms of prehistoric hunter-gatherer demography, end quote. Mm -hmm. So, for example... In the ancient past, very few, if any, people lived to old age, so 40 plus. So it's true that the fossil record doesn't show a lot of individuals in those upper age brackets, but there are other possible explanations for this. So maybe burial practices were different for the elderly. Also, older people have less calcium in their bones, meaning that those bones might not preserve. They don't exist in the fossil record. And finally, uh, age at death estimates from especially fragmentary fossils aren't foolproof. So... Well, and also, of all the people that have lived in on this planet, statistically, we, surely we haven't found a lot of them, right? So probably a lot of older ones that we just haven't found. Yeah, yeah. that's my Profound. big contribution. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it. Uh, pitfall number three, and this is the last. I I, I did say there were five, but only going to do three here. <laughs> it's, I didn't want this to be a fifteen-page script. So. It's, yeah, I mean. So number three, demographic uniformitarianism doesn't work. Quote, demographic uniformitarianism refers to the assumption that basic demographic processes, so that that means, uh, hi, me, just interjecting. Uh, That just means like different uh, patterns in the various categories of a social group. So age, sex, social role, etc. That is the demography of a group. So those basic demographic processes are unchanged between the past and the present. This does not mean that demographic behaviors have remained the same throughout history, but that the biological processes are similar, responding to variations in the social and natural environment in the same way, and that these similarities act as constraints and impose limits on demographic behaviors. End quote. Hmm. So first of all, by necessity, this idea and and this caveat only applies to homo sapiens since we can't assume behavioral consistency between our species and even a different type of human so we can't even assume that our demography and our social patterns amber's having a brain explodey moment are the same as what would it be experienced by a neanderthal population or a denisovan population or homo floresiensis um so we can't assume even within homo sapiens We can't assume that things like group size and social organization are constants through prehistory because they're not even constants across modern groups of Homo sapiens. There isn't one particular modern foraging group that's a correct proxy for foraging behavior in the past because it's completely dependent on local resources, random environmental factors, and how that particular group evolved socially and and biologically. You okay? You're not telling me anything I didn't know on a certain level but hearing it but is different this is... and i'm forcing you to face it and confront the the complexity of of humanity i'm sorry that's kind of our whole show because though. it it is i know i know but i think this is something that's sort of chipping away at sort of what you know what i was saying above about sort of like something that i said like isn't natural law like this is something that you're assuming okay. that there were always only homo sapiens <laughs> I mean, I know you're not assuming that, but like the idea of natural law. Because I haven't, I've never thought about, I've never thought. Neanderthal natural law. (laughs) It's different for everybody. So does demographic, so just so I understand and just Mm -hmm. so the listeners understand. So looking at demographic uniformitarianism. So the demographics would say a, 
a population would have 50 to 70 individuals. It is 40% male. It, it like though I'm making those up. I'm yes, I, but, but I it's, understand it's that. that. So is it's that, that something idea. that like the idea that, so like on this planet, like for among homo sapiens, like 52% or something is like biologically female. It's something, something like that. Yeah. 51 so to 2%. Yep. Is that, would like for Homo heidelbergensis, perhaps it would be fifty six percent. Is that well, the that's kind the of thing idea. that you're trying to get at? Is that right. it could be those sorts of things could be different? Yeah. So we can't necessarily extrapolate, even though we see the same patterns holding in Homo sapiens over time. Mm-hmm. Just because we share common ancestors with an extinct population doesn't necessarily mean that that population had exactly the same demographics that we see in ancient human populations. Because, let's say, for example, uh, different species have different birth rates, right? And okay. and yeah. different um, dependence on resources. And so the, the population sizes that were possible for a given species at a given time might be different. And so in general, population demographics are so dependent on external factors and intrinsic biological factors mm-hmm. that you cannot assume if if the social, biological, and sort of evolutionary and environmental factors are different as they are for other human species in the past, Mm -hmm. you cannot assume a consistent pattern and you can't extrapolate what you see from humans onto those other species accurately. And, and it's really difficult because we have such a fragmentary fossil record. Like I think, you know, for Homo heidelbergensis, maybe we have a hundred individuals represented or something like that or less. I'm not sure. I just made that up, but Right. Let, let's say, you know, for a particular species and think of how many humans there are on, are on this planet now. I mean, that is a And we still like, haven't quite nailed it down yeah, in we're terms not, of like <laughs> in terms how of people do. Supporting a population. Yeah. Well, that, uh, <laughs> seven billion. Good Lord. Uh, no, but like the point I is just that you can't, there, there is no um, direct correlation from okay. species to species. Is, is all that's yeah. So, uh, as listeners may have gathered at this point, this could be a whole episode on its own, or even a whole anthropology course on its own, or like a PhD yeah. dissertation on its own. So, we'll stop here for another quick ad break. We'll catch our breath and Please then we'll take a tour of some sites. Yet, yeah, don't go away, don't leave. <laughs> take a tour of some archaeological sites to see if we can get at inequality a little more tangibly through burial. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. 
so we're back. We're back. Still recovering, um, frankly. We've talked a little bit about equality. We've talked a little bit about inequality. We've talked <laughs> a little bit about a lot of things. Where's this going, bud? I don't know. <laughs> <sighs> just going like straight to the couch. <laughs> just like, let's just go cuddle your dog. And to wrap up our look at questions of inequality in the past, because we certainly don't have any answers. Nope. Um, Sorry, Nick. We will be... <laughs> He's going to demand a refund. Uh, looking at Give me back my $25. Such we're going to be looking price. We're going to be looking at burials, which yep. addresses our questions in a couple of different ways. First of all, where are the old people? <laughs> that's not on the script, but it, that's a good question. Um, first of all, the act of burial itself, separate from any questions of ritual or belief, who gets buried? Does burial mean something or is it a pragmatic act? You know, we don't have any answers. <laughs> Still, uh, we're just thinking our thoughts. So, More yeah, so than usual in this episode. Sort of like, we're just really having some thinky like, thoughts over here. Is it is it ritual or pragmatic? Like if if that's sort of like, what? like think about what your cat does. Your cat isn't, or is she? Because sometimes she's just dick. Okay, that's not a good. So when no, you're camping, when you're backpacking and like you have to it's go. It's practical poo. to dig to dig a latrine hole because you don't want that hanging out with you. You aren't like sending it back to the earth from which it came in the you form of like the lentils that you, <laughs> I, know, I don't know what you do on your backpacking trips. Um, so like, is it something, but is Sticks it something that is, porta potties is what I do. imbued with ritual meaning? So, but for our purposes, that doesn't matter here because what we're looking at, and again, we don't have answers because the, the archeological record is incomplete, but the idea of just everyone get buried I'm like, okay, because we're talking about archaeological evidence, we're talking mm-hmm. about burial as like being interred in the ground. Mm-hmm. Or are we so talking the, about like rituals associated with Nope, divo- like we're we're divorcing the concept of burial from ritual and just talking about the deliberate placement of an individual either in a purposely dug hole or in an existing protected spot for whatever reason. We don't know whether it's just because you don't want to leave out a dead body and, and attract scavengers okay. for your own protection or whether it has some symbolic meaning for our purposes here. It doesn't matter. It's just sort of the idea of where is the oldest place in the archeological record that we see this behavior. So you see interment. Interment. Yes. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. So listeners, since we're thinking about how far back in time we can trace archaeological clues for inequality, how long ago would you say the oldest deliberate burial probably occurred? Take a second to make a prediction. Write it down on a little piece of paper. Fold it up Send more it than seven times. The Dirt Podcast at one two three Internet Street. Whoa. Okay. No. Chomp 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 chomp. No choking hazard. <laughs> Got a guess? Okay. <laughs> how many jelly beans? We're pulling here from another Sapiens article. Thank you, Sapiens. Thank you. Uh, this time written work. in 2018 by Paige Madison. Two Sapiens articles not written by Anna. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's, not just me. <laughs> it's not just me over there. It's not just my blog. <laughs> it's a real site. So uh, Madison writes, quote, The fossils were discovered in 2013 and were quickly recognized as the remains of a new species unlike anything seen before, named Homo naledi. I just wanted to make sure. Oh, yeah, you got it. It yeah, wasn't yeah. like, Nelledi. Um, <laughs> if, if you want it to be. No, Nelledi. It's Luomo. <laughs> Luomo Nelledi. Oh, again, this is, I'm getting back to my, I don't want to go to a museum about men. <laughs> Homo Nelledi, am I right? <laughs> 
It has an unexpected mix of modern features and primitive ones, including a fairly small brain. Arguably the most shocking. It doesn't come with judgment. It just has a small brain. Don't give me that look. Arguably the most shocking aspect of Homo Nilady, though, uh, concern not the remains themselves, but rather their resting place. I believe that, and I, I will try to find this if it exists, and I'm not just making it up that so that we can post it on social media, but I believe that you can actually take a virtual tour of this particular resting place. So I'll try to find that. Where is it? Rising Star Cave. It's that one where the archaeologists have to crawl. They have to be tiny ladies. Where is it? In the Malmani Dolomites in the Blaubank River Valley, about 800 meters southwest of Svartkrans in South Africa. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Home of Jeep Vanderhunk. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you about African caves for our live show that our listeners should definitely come to on Thursday, February 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern uh, because we're going to have some great names. Deep kloof. <laughs> the chamber where the bones were found is far from the cave entrance, accessible only through a narrow, difficult passage that is completely shrouded in darkness. Accessible only by ladies, tiny ladies. I mean, they they put out a call for archaeologists who work on this site that's like, you need to be like five foot two and slight. Wow. It's because it's a tiny tunnel. Good thing I can digitally, I can virtually see this because there's no way you'd ever get me in there. Same. Also, I'm claustrophobic. So, yeah. <laughs> and I would get stuck. Scientists believe the chamber has long been difficult to access, requiring a journey of vertical climbing, crawling, and tight squeezing through spaces only 20 centimeters across. Absolutely not. No, thank you. Even if I did have a small body and tiny brain. Not suggesting that these archaeologists have tiny brains. I'm referring to the Homo Naledi. Gosh. (laughs) Speaking of not thinking women are people. (laughs) These tiny brained ladies. That's not what I said. Crawling through there with their heels. <laughs> Hang on, I have to apply my lipstick. Oh, I broke my nail. Yeah. Um, it would be an impossible place to live and a highly unlikely location for many individuals to have ended up by accident. <laughs> Oops. And so, and we're confident that when Homo Naledi was living there, it wasn't the same way? There doesn't seem to have been any significant change in the structure of the cave for okay. a long time. Okay. Those details push the research team toward a shocking hypothesis. Dun dun. Despite its puny brain, Homo Naledi purposefully interred its dead. The cave chamber was a graveyard, they concluded. For humans, death is an enormously culturally meaningful process. Cultures around the world honored the deceased with rituals and ceremonies that communicate a variety of values and abstract ideas. Since the 19th century, anthropologists have examined these mortuary practices to learn more about the religions and beliefs of other cultures. During this time, it never occurred to anyone that other creatures, even other hominins, the primate group encompassing the genus Homo, along with the genus Australopithecus and other close relatives, could have engaged in similar behavior. Surely, the thinking went, humans alone operate in such an abstract world as to assign deep meaning to death. Not true, and don't call me Shirley. (laughs) Yet this behavior must have appeared at some point in our evolutionary history. Since mortuary rituals such as song and dance are invisible in the archaeological record, scientists focused on material aspects of such uh, such as burial to trace the history of the practice. 
The discovery soon prompted tough questions about the conventional viewpoint, suggesting that mortuary rituals might not have been uniquely human after all. Yeah. So here's the thing. Circling back around to the point we were trying to make about extrapolating from modern hunter-gatherers, because the fossil record is so fragmentary, we don't know much about... So we know uh, we have remains from about 15 individuals uh, for Homo nullity. That's it. That's what we have for the extent of that whole population. So we How don't know... How many of them know. are old? <laughs> I don't know that. I mean, they're all <laughs> old, but not not the kind you mean. We don't know much about their demographics or their behavior, apart from they seem to have buried their dead, or their cognition, even though they had small brains. But it seems that their social behavior at least included burial. And so if we want to point to the earliest possible time to look for possible clues about social structure based on burial, this would be it. So now all we need is for about a thousand more Homo naledi burials to be found, so we have a lot more data. Ladies, get spelunking. <laughs> Oh, what a delightful phrase. <laughs> so that article, again, was excerpted. And so it goes on to talk about a lot more evidence for burial practices in other hominins, like Neanderthals. But Naledi is the earliest example. So let's talk about another aspect of burial besides the act itself, grave goods. The and grave bads. Grave goods, grave bads. Grave uglies. <laughs> Very good. The things that an individual is buried with are, among other things, signifiers of that person's role and standing in the community. The Sungir burials are a particularly early example of a burial with grave goods, and it's an assemblage that Nick specifically mentioned in his episode request. So let's talk about it with yet another Sapiens article. Not by me. <laughs> this one is from 2018 by Leah Surug, or possibly Surugwe. Around 34,000 years ago, Leah writes, hunter-gatherers who roamed the Russian plains started to bury their dead at the site of Sungir, about 200 kilometers east of what is today Moscow. Now considered one of the most iconic Upper Paleolithic sites in Europe, Sungir was initially discovered in 1955 while it was a quarry, because that's just how you find hominins. It's just how you find people. A quarry. After careful excavations from 1957 to 1977, mm. you okay? This is a long time to be working somewhere. I have a lot of commitment issues, so that really stressed <laughs> me out to see it's such okay. a long... <laughs> 50 years ago. After those excavations uncovered 30,000 to 34,000 year old remains, the site has never ceased to fascinate archaeologists, including me. The mortuary site contains extremely elaborate burials of an adult male covered in beads and ochre, a red clay earth pigment, and a juve... What? Sorry. Covered in beads! <laughs> covered in beads! <laughs> oh. No, that's not funny. It's just the, the bees, beads. <laughs> no. Dynamic I, is always funny. As is Eddie Izzard. Ugh. <sighs> And a juvenile and an adolescent, approximately 10 and 12 years old, buried head to head. Over the last 60 years, the remains of at least 10 individuals have been discovered at Sungir, though some of the bones have been lost in the intervening years. Aww, that's disappointing. In a recent study published in the journal Antiquity, researchers pooled all of the data available about the remains at Sungir. The team provides the most complete description to date of the humans interred and the objects recovered at the site. So again, we've got an adult male and two juveniles that are the, the primary burials that this article talks about. 
The male adult, covered in beads and ochre, was between 35 and 45 years of age when he died. Bioarchaeological analysis suggests he might have sustained a sudden death, probably due to an incision in his neck. What? <laughs> It'll do it. He cut himself shaving. Oh, he was, he was, he was also trying to do dermaplaning? <laughs> With like a spear, yeah. While his grave, which contains about 3,000 mammoth ivory beads, pierced fox canines, and ivory armbands, is stunning, that of the juvenile and the adolescent is even more so. In addition to beads and ochre, carefully manufactured mammoth ivory spears, ivory discs, and pierced cervid antlers, just deer, were found with the skeletons. Yet these extravagant burials are only part of the reason why Sunkir stands out in the archaeological record. The research now suggests that the site is characterized by a much greater diversity of mortuary behaviors than archaeologists previously thought. While an adult femur shaft was found in the grave with the two youngsters, another femur bone was discovered isolated near the graves, with indications that the body had been abandoned on the surface without receiving any formal treatment. A cranium, the first human bone to be discovered at the site in 1964, was found with artifacts just above the adult's lavish grave. Different head. Not that guy's head. Although this cranium represents only one part of the skeleton, it appears to have been deposited there in the context of a funerary ritual. These analyses have led the authors of this study in antiquity to conclude that at least three different forms of burials were practiced at Sunghir. Radiocarbon dating suggests that these different burials date back to the same period, so it's not a question of different practices developing over time. All three of these things were happening by the same group at the same time. The contrast between lavish burials and isolated skeletal elements at the site also suggests that there was some kind of differentiation between individuals during their lifetimes that was then reflected in death. Although it is not clear what the social structure of these people looked like or how it was determined, the evidence at Sungir suggests that individuals didn't necessarily acquire a status through their actions. Something else may have determined their position within their communities and how they were eventually treated in death. The double burial of the two juveniles, is telling in this respect. The spears would have taken time to produce, and they had high utilitarian value. The probability that these young individuals would have accumulated enough status in their lifetimes to be buried with such valuable objects is low. Sungir may thus be considered as the earliest modern human burial site in Europe, with evidence of a social structure that would not have solely depended on people's acquired status. And this is also maybe the most interesting part to me specifically, both the juvenile and the adolescent appear to have suffered from physical abnormalities. Although no diagnosis has been established so far, it's likely that their disabilities would have been visible to others. Their difference may have been part of the reason they were given an extravagant burial. So the difference is um, one of the juveniles had a protruding upper jaw, like a one that would have been noticeable in, Mm -hmm. you know, and the other individual had shortened and bowed femurs. Okay. So would have affected probably mobility and appearance. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? This is interesting. I am. I, you may have noticed that I like looked like I was zoning out there, but I was, I was like. No, I know you're thinking. I know that's your thinking face. Yeah. Um, but thinking about how this, this like line of thinking or like the sort of this, not necessarily this line of inquiry, but like this question, this question can also be posed by people who subscribe to the ideas that we kind of brought up in our prehistoric matriarchy episode uh, that I brought up, like the stuff that I brought to it about sort of like this idea of like, 
the matriarchy and this idea of a more like peaceful egalitarian past. Gimbertash figured heavily in some of this reading. Yeah. And, and like this, and this is sort of the corner of the world where she worked and the periods mm-hmm. in which she worked, but also the, these ideas that this, a similar question is being asked by people who subscribe to the idea that um, this is in perhaps loosely or very rigidly linear that this is something that we were egalitarian and then we stopped being egalitarian and like whether that's good or bad it happened and it happened along a a past but what is also important to remember is that there are there's lots of evidence for egalitarianism and that there's like a capacity like there's a capacity in humans and a capacity in human groups to be unequal and to be equal and and i think that this is um this is something that that we should think about sort of as we as we look for um egalitarian and and unequal societies in the past we can also think about this as something to look for in the future and something yep. to look for in like our uh, in living communities yeah that that this isn't something that it isn't was something that happened out. and then went away yeah and then my other point <laughs> that I was thinking about, like specifically about like burials, is is special attention in burial, same, same special attention in life. Well, you can't make that assumption, but you can say that special attention in burial means something. It does. Yeah. And so I just I um, and I'm not saying that you or the authors of this study like said that like we're equating. No, it's a good it's a good of, but, um, but it's point something to bring that up. I, yep. I want the listeners to be thinking about as. It As means they continue something. to listen to this two-hour episode, but it, but it doesn't necessarily. It doesn't mean the easy thing. It doesn't no. mean no, no, no. no. Uh, unfortunately, Occam's razor doesn't always apply in archaeology. Yeah. So back to the script. Thank you for indulging me as I think through all these things. It's okay. I'm. I love indulging you. I have to pee, and my sciatica is acting up. Okay. Well. So <laughs> those are the only limits on I'm my indulgence. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> Anna's bladder and, and sciatica go, oh, thank God. Let's look at one more interesting example of grave goods. Grave goofs. <laughs> yeah, I kept typing. It was like that time that Google kept trolling me with tiny text. <laughs> like I just kept typing grave goofs. <laughs> so kept making a grave goof. This also includes a mystery. And so this is from February 2020 in the journal Archaeological and Anthropological Sciences. Scapulae and phalanges as grave goods. A mystery from the early Bronze Age. Yep. Um, so um, you can probably tell from the title, but uh... it's a little dance and uh, a little jargony. Um, so Anna has very helpfully distilled the main points here. Yep. The study assemblage included material from burials of the Unititsa culture. Unititsa. Unititsa. Um, and they they lived uh, roughly 2200 to 1700 BCE in Bohemia, in what is now the Czech Republic. A large percentage of these burials contained scapulae, shoulder blades, from animals like cattle, pig, sheep, goat, and red deer. A servid. A servid, indeed. Service elephus, if you must know. Oh. Woo. Yeah. Diana. 
I know names of animals. <laughs> Phalanges are also all over the place in these burials. For us humans, those would be the finger bones. Thingies. In the animals mentioned above, they're the bones inside the hooves. Yes, there are bones inside animal hooves. <laughs> Take a deep breath. <laughs> it's very unlikely that these had anything. I know I'm doing it. We're both doing hoof hands. <laughs> It's very unlikely that these had anything to do with food offerings. Neither the shoulder blade nor phalanges represent very meaty parts of the body. Um, despite my mom's dogs. <laughs> chomp, chomp, chomp. Your dogs, your dogs chomp your shoulder blades? No, she chomps my, my, my phalanges. So either um, really bad food or not food. So. Yep. Mm. But the bones were clearly selected. This wasn't one of the trash dump, and the skeletal elements are separate, not an incidental inclusion because a whole animal was buried. Oops, all fingies. <laughs> the worst um, cereal. <laughs> um, so we're going to let the authors handle this one because it made Anna giggle. <laughs> <laughs> An earlier suggestion that scapulae were used as a trowel for digging grave pits is highly improbable, as follows from our analysis, and we were unable to confirm the use of the flat scapula as a plate for other offerings or as a base for paintings. Uh, this is because mostly the scapula were found uh, face down, or rather with the dorsal surface pointing upward. So if you look at either a human or a, another mammal scapula, there is a very definite spine or ridge that comes up out of the scapula. And that's what a lot of our shoulder muscles attach to. So there's a, there's like a flat blade that forms the scapula and then there's a spine that comes up from it. And so okay. that was found pointing up in the grave. So the idea that anything was put on these scapula is a, it's a very bad platform. Okay. Because there's just like something sticking up out of the middle of it. It's a bad plate. And a base for paintings. I mean, it, is that like... You would expect the other surface. If anything was painted, you'd expect it to be on the other surface. And yet that was the surface that in these graves was okay. face down. Okay. Yeah. And this is the part that made me giggle. <laughs> the, the choice of the near triangular scapula to symbolize the triangle must be left... In the realm of speculation. No explanation of what triangle we're symbolizing. Just a triangle. Like, they're Illuminati. This they're Illuminati the- or it's like the, the Holy Trinity. What's happening? <laughs> we don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, the authors speculate that the phalanges may have been used as gaming pieces or for divination or other rituals. Yeah, because they uh, they are used as such in lots of other cultures, sort of worldwide. So that's that's the okay. Then they they make that clear in the article. They're just like, we don't know for sure, but you know, based on other evidence from lots of other cultures, maybe it was this. And and whether they symbolized a square must be left to the realm of speculation. Absolutely. Here's a fun puzzle. Is this the mystery? Yeah. Scapulae and phalanges usually don't appear together in a single grave here at this site. At this at this site usually. And, and collections of sites in this Unitiza culture. Okay. Those individuals that have bones as grave goods seem to have either one type or the other. We have found the two genders. <laughs> Scapula or finger. I'm a phalange. <laughs> um, the authors again, in their conclusion... 
quote. The possible practical or symbolic uses are endlessly debatable. I bet they just They're just like <laughs> gifts. Still going. <laughs> In the paper, various equally probable or improbable interpretations are considered in detail, although only one can, of course, be true. There can only be one. Is that Which true? I, dis- I disagree with. I don't think so. I disagree. But- the use of phalanges as decoration or parts of clothing is improbable because of the manu- their unmanufactured state and highly variable position in graves. Nonetheless, phalanges and especially astragali... Astragali, ankle bones, were and are used as game dice, tokens, prophetic tools, amulets, talismans, toys, or musical instruments, as we know from various historical and ethnographic studies and observations. These two elements are probably the only parts of mammalian anatomy used widely and systematically as oracle bones across America, Europe, Africa and Asia. The presence of either a single single scapula or a single phalanx, similar in shape and size to astragalus. Astragalus. Second syllable emphasis. Astragalus. Yep. (laughs) And to a lesser degree, astragali. Yep. (laughs) In the early Bronze Age graves is striking. Is this coincidence only random? And that's how they end the article. Article so, over. Ending an article with a question is a power move, and we are here for it. We yep. absolutely love to see it. But the takeaway here is that this category of grave goods is something some people had and others didn't. What did it mean? We don't know. Um, but we do know that there had to have been some sort of social differentiation involved, or everyone would have had shoulders and fingies in their graves. Yeah. So it's it's just different. It's not necessarily unequal. So it's, it's different. It's well, it, I mean, it is unequal. In the, oh, well, it doesn't necessarily speak to social inequality, but it speaks to inequality in practice. And so what does that mean? Is it is that social? Mm-hmm. Is it? Well, I don't know. I don't have answers. So, Nick, so we have no answers. Kind of <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. So, boy. Well, we've explored the topic of inequality in the ancient past and come up with more questions than we started with, which is actually kind of the norm for us. So thank you, Nick, again, for such an interesting topic. Uh, It's a lot of food for thought, definitely meatier than a scapula or phalanx, for sure. Yeah. And listeners, if you want to sponsor an episode on the archaeological or anthropological topic of your choice, head on over to our website, thedirtpod.com, and scroll down to the bottom of the page where you'll see a little clickable graphic that says sponsor an episode. It's new. And then you can sponsor an episode. I just drew I it. That. Yeah. So thank you all so much for listening, and we will be back in your ears next week with another episode, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you like to listen. And until then, you can find us on social media. We are on Facebook. It's The Dirt Podcast. We are on Twitter. It's Dirt Podcast. And we are on the Instagram. Not as often as we could be. It's The Dirt Pod. And also, all of that goes to our website, thedirtpod.com. One easy place. And also, please come to our live show. We're very nervous and very excited. It's going to be so much fun. And once more, and then I promise we'll stop because it'll be over. Uh, it's uh, February 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern, so East Coast time, East Coast United States. And it is a free show. 
All you have to do is go over to thedirtpod.com slash anthroday2021 to reserve your spot and get the link to the Zoom. And so so I feel like I should do some like soft shocking now because now they're going to sleep because they listen to us before bedtime. I hope you have wonderful dreams and I hope that you wake up to a world of equality. Dream of societies to come. Good night. We love you. Good night. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.